Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden hosts civil rights lawyer Terry Gilbert, along with journalist and author Carlo Wolf, to discuss their new book, Trying Times. In his memoir, Gilbert discusses his experience challenging preconceived notions in the legal system, and how he used his position to bring attention towards equity both inside and out of the court. All this and more on Lines from Loganberry. I am Aisha Hedden. Today with Loganberry Books, we are in discussion with Terry Gilbert and Carla Wolf, who co-authored Terry Gilbert's autobiography, Trying Times. And with that, let's get started. Terry Gilbert has been in private law practice since 1973. He is the founding partner of the law firm Friedman, Gilbert, and Gerhardstein. He focuses on criminal defense and civil rights. Over the years, Gilbert has handled a variety of government misconduct cases, including police accountability, wrongful conviction, violations of free speech, and prisoners' rights. His career made him acquaintances with notable Black power figures and revolutionaries such as Huey Newton, Louise Eldridge, and Bobby Seale, who stayed in his house in Cleveland Heights. Some of his notable cases include the first defamation lawsuit attempted against the Cleveland Indians baseball team for the Chief Wahoo logo, and for that he was with the American Indians movement. And he also did a case against the Cleveland police for the murder of Marlissa Williams and Timothy Russell in East Cleveland for what he calls one of the worst cases of police misconduct in U.S. history. He's a lifelong resident of Cleveland Heights, a graduate of Cleveland Marshall School of Law at CSU, where he and his wife, Robin, endowed the Gilbert Social Science Fellowship for Students Pursuing Public Interest Law. Carla Wolf, his co-author, is a freelance journalist and author who has written for publications including the Boston Globe, Chicago Sun-Times, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, The Plain Dealer, and The Christian Science Monitor. He is the author of Robert Madison's autobiography, Designing Victory. Terry Gilbert and Carla Wolf, welcome to Loganberry Books. Good afternoon. It's great to see you and get to know you a bit, and I'm very happy uh, to help support the book and also to support Loganberry Bookstore. We appreciate that. We're actually really super proud of our um, of our uh, Ohio-based and local authors. So thank you. Okay, Terry, I actually, I hope that you have a copy of the book in your hand. Well, I do. I have a copy of the segment that I'm supposed to read. So that's uh, Roman numeral 20, the paragraph beginning many of the legal battles in the book. Okay. Many of the legal battles in this book speak to a long tradition of radical lawyering in the style of the great Clarence Darrow. Based on the realization that eventual outcomes 
are not always determined by legal proceedings, but rather by societal responses. The establishment cringes at this approach because the legal system takes pride in being untouched by outside forces, projecting a facade that a case should only be decided by facts and legal precedent, not public outrage or political influence. This rigidity is often hypocritical because no one actually believes that politics are not at play in the courts. Just look at the current effort to stack the federal courts, including the US Supreme Court with right-wing ideologues or the bias of an elected county judge who excuses questionable law enforcement conduct in return for its endorsements. Thank you, that was a big statement. So let's jump into it. Sure. So Terry, there's a whole decorum around the institution of justice. However, one of the most shocking things in your book, Trying Times, is that you name names. You name judges who were sometimes bad actors. You call out Ralph McAllister, Patricia McCleary, Kilbane, Blythen, Daniel Corrigan. You also call out some of the notable prosecutors, including Tim McGinty and Bill Mason and Michael Maloney. Why in this book did you put yourself out there? Why did you feel that it was important to be specific? And by your specificity and naming their names, what is it that you want the residents of Cuyahoga County to know about its judges and its prosecutors and the administration of justice? So many of these people are, you know, were elected officials who are accountable to the people. Uh, some of them are public servants who are also accountable to the people. The judges that you mentioned, they're all deceased. And there was publicity about these cases when I was involved in them. What I'm doing is calling them out for their failings. They have an ethical duty to promote justice and be fair. And in these cases that I talk about, fairness seemed to go out the window. There's nothing personal about this. It's about their actions. And I think that the First Amendment obviously supports the idea of telling the truth and uh, holding people accountable, even by name. Actually, one of the surprising ones was the switch from Stephanie Tubbs Jones, who took over Lewis Stokes's seat. And then for the Shepherd case, which was, um, I think it's called wrongful death, if I said it right. Uh, wrongful imprisonment case. Wrongful imprisonment case. You got Bill Mason and you talked about him doubling down on county money to more or less obstruct a new investigation. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about what happened in that case? Right. Well, after Stephanie Jones stepped down as the prosecutor to replace Lewis Stokes as the uh, 11th district a representative in the House of Representatives. Bill Mason was selected by the Democratic Party to take over the county prosecutor position, and he had to run for re-election within a year. And I believe that he saw this high-profile case, which is one of the most high-profile cases in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County history, as an opportunity for him to get a, a lot of media attention. Now, I want to say that he wrote a book about the Shepherd case after the trial and attacked me. 
claiming that I was a media hog and that I was trying to make money off the case, which was not true. So I'm not retaliating against them, but he's a part of that story because I was trying to work with the prosecutors to reopen the case based on a whole lot of new evidence, including scientific forensic evidence that we believe that would shed light on not only whether Dr. Shepard committed the horrible murder of his wife, Marilyn, but also whether he was actually innocent. And we did have another suspect that was really more likely the, the perpetrator. So once again, Bill Mason is a public figure and I criticized him for the way he handled the case. There was not supposed to be a trial. The, the legal process was to extract the evidence from the county and the coroner's office, which played a big role in that, in that case, and try to come up with at least an, a recognition that many things were, went wrong. And there were abuses back in 1954 when Dr. Shepard was, was tried by the media, actually, and uh, was not a fair trial. And the Supreme Court recognized that down the road. I think that that's a good segue to go ahead and talk about the media. So you talk about learning early on that the media is an important player in the carriage of justice, that people will get a fair trial or not get a fair trial in many ways, dependent upon how a savvy attorney can influence media one way or other and make sure that parts of the story get in or out. So then can you talk about with, um, with a trial, with like litigation, how the media plays the role? Maybe if you can give a specific example. I'm actually, I really like the Chief Wahoo case about how, you know, when you were the first attorney to try to bring a defamation case against the Cleveland Indians about the caricature of Chief Wahoo, about how it raised everyone's consciousness about seeing Chief Wahoo as a really hideous figure right. that really shouldn't be there anymore. So can you talk about the relationship between law, trials, and media? So in general, there is a balance between media coverage and fair trials, uh, mostly in the, in the context of criminal cases because constitutional rights of the accused are very important. And we know that juries are, don't come in uh, in a vacuum. They bring all of their knowledge and perceptions and exposures that shape their view of the world. If the prosecutor in a criminal case controls the narrative by bringing an indictment, most people think, well, they must got the right person. They got a grand jury indictment and there's going to be a trial. The person must have done something wrong. The only way you can counteract that is by using the media to pre present at least a narrative that, that balances the way the case is reported and attempt to get a message out to the community. Hey, folks, there's more to this story than what you may think. Uh, with the Chief Wahoo case, we never thought that that was actually a legal case that had any merit. It was no surprise that the idea of group defamation was never recognized in American law. There was really no cases that would support this claim, but we filed it anyway because we wanted to call attention to 
how brutal that that image was and how it affected Native American culture and conditions that they that existed with Native Americans in our history. And so it brought a lot of attention both locally and nationally. It kind of languished in the courts for like 11 years before we finally settled it for money. They didn't drop the name. What this process did was call attention along with the other activists uh, protests that happened every year on opening day and during the World Series. The, the combination of the activists and to some extent the legal, the legal process brought people into, some people will never ever back off on the idea of their beloved Chief Wahoo because they, you know, it was part of Cleveland, people grew up with it, and how could you take that away? But other people began to think about it as, you know, as we evolve as a society, we, we, we are trying to promote the idea that racial issues do matter. And, you know, just like they've gotten rid of Black Sambo and other derogatory references in American folk art to the blackface, the minstrels and all that, the same thing was happening with Native Americans. They were, they were, you know, entertainment for people. You know, the war cry and wearing the feathers. They were viewed as caricatures in movies and in popular literature as well. So, you know, the bottom line is that it took decades before just recently the mascot was, was obliterated and the name is now going to be changed. So the way I look at law is that it's a combination, not it's not just what happens in court, it what it, it's what happens outside of court and changing public opinion to change the, the world. And, you know, that, so that's kind of like the way, way I think of it. It works in certain cases and not in the others. So you gotta, you gotta balance it out. So Carlo, you know, this is a place where I think it would be very useful for you to jump in because you are a freelance journalist, right? Yes. How do you feel about the media landscape specifically in Cleveland? Do you think that we have the kind of investigative reporters and beat reporters that are necessary to bring attention to issues and to propel forward issues of equal justice in our city right now? That's a big question that's hard to say. No, I don't think there are enough beat reporters. There's not enough coverage overall. There's some good journalism still, including in the Plain Dealer, which is eviscerated compared to what it was when I got here 30, 35 years ago. Okay, it was a powerful, really good paper then. Okay, but there are other media that are stepping up. The key thing is, no, there aren't enough beat reporters. There, there are there's some really good ones, but there just aren't enough of them. And there's also a kind of disturbing trend in media to be, to verge on the advertorial, the so-called sponsored story, which I've written myself. I've been a B2B journalist. And that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And it's, put it this way, your ethics become pretty elastic. Okay? 
I, in the last 10 years, I've been less involved in daily or even weekly journalism than I have been in books. I've been writing these, I've been co-writing these memoirs and biographies, and it's been, that's a completely different animal. And hopefully it lasts longer and goes deeper. And your books have been very important, particularly that uh, Robert Madison and also this book, Trying Times with Terry, which I would call a history of social justice in Cleveland from 1970 to present. Right. Um, for anybody who cares about these issues, honestly, it is essential reading. So Terry, back to you. You have defended a lot of unpopular clients like the Hells Angels and Tax Evaders in South Dakota. I want to talk about Ray Luke Lavasser of the Ohio Seven. So the Ohio Seven was a domestic terrorist group that planted bombs at defense contractors who made weapons for American wars overseas. You tell of an incident in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Ohio when a deputy marshal punched Ray Lavasser in the face, in the middle of a courtroom while he was giving his testimony. Chief Justice Frank Battisti walked out of the courtroom when it happened because he was pretending he didn't even see that happen. I was shocked by this incident. And at the dinner table, I had a conversation with my family about it. And I have to say, some family members thought, you know what? it's okay to punch a domestic terrorist in the face. So I want to know, how do you respond to people, ordinary citizens of Cuyahoga County, who could care less when an unpopular person has their rights violated in a court of law? Okay, I'm sorry. The, uh, your, the family member who had an emotional and visceral reaction to my client as a quote, domestic terrorist, I can understand people have opinions, but it, the system is designed to give justice for everyone, even the worst of us. Because if you only have justice for people you like, who are not so bad, then and, and uh, avoid justice for others, then the whole system collapses. Because the constitution, does, it doesn't say, well, you're going to have a right to a lawyer, you're going to have a right to a fair trial, but only if you're white and only if you're privileged and not uh, doing bad things. Uh, so, I mean, every lawyer who, who takes a case uh, knows this. And uh, it's kind of like the, the, the question that you get at cocktail parties all the time. How could you defend a murderer? And the answer is it's easy because it's not up to us to decide, the lawyers, who's guilty or not guilty. It's up to a due process. It's up to the jury to make that decision. And even the appellate court sometimes. Everybody's entitled to have a fair trial and everybody's entitled to a lawyer. I have no problem representing unpopular people. Actually, I thought that what was going on with Ohio 7, I didn't agree with the with the bombing of defense contractors in the East Coast, and something that I wouldn't do, but I understand the motive because those defense contractors were sending weapons of mass destructive to the military to be used 
on third world countries where many, many civilians were killed. And whether the ends justify the means is not, was not for me to make that decision. I wanted to make sure that he got a fair shake at the legal system. When he was cold cocked by a deputy ma uh, marshal in the courtroom because he was reading a statement. He wasn't doing anything violent or this other, it was, he was disrupt, disrupting the court according to the marshal because he wouldn't stop reading a statement. That was uncalled for. And it was uncalled, I had a great deal of respect for Judge Batista. He was the judge that found that the Cleveland school system was de facto segregated in ordered busing, whether that was popular or not. I had a lot of respect for him. And he actually was somewhat of a liberal kind of guy, an old fashioned kind of liberal. But when, when, he, when he, he had no idea what to do when he saw that. And his instinct was, I'm getting out of here. Uh, and I am yelling, judge, did you see that? I mean, that shouldn't happen in a courtroom in America. I mean, that, that would be something you see in a banana republic. But that was the kind of things that we were dealing with in these cases. The notion of terrorism would excuse the, the violation of rights because they're bad people and they need to be taken care of. You also warn in your book that the United States is close to becoming a police state. You retell chilling stories of the FBI's raid on the Black Unity House, the Cleveland police raid on Robert Father Biggin, and another incident about false testimony against Art McCoy over in East Cleveland. Can you retell maybe one of these stories for the audience and then tell us what these stories presage about the American police state? And just before you get started, I have to say as a reader, I was positively shocked that it seems with Art McCoy, they they fabricated evidence. It was not real. Well, yeah. Well, all, all these individuals that we talked, that you brought up in cases were products of activist efforts to change society. Father Begin was a radical Catholic priest who was against the war in Vietnam and had been arrested a few times before the bail fund ball where he and a number of other people were arrested for raising money for bail for people who didn't have money. And so these were cases arising out of the high ideal of activist work. But the problem is, is that we have seen from the 60s on and even before that the police are used as instruments of, the, of those in power to suppress dissent. In the 60s, there was a program called COINTELPRO by the FBI, which targeted Martin Luther King Jr., other, other black nationalists, uh, basically to, to destroy them and to neutralize them. They even, you know, they had wiretaps on people. They used smear tactics to disparage people and to diminish their power. And Brother Diablo, who organized the Black Unity House in East Cleveland as a way to combat heroin addiction through using methadone, at the same time in inspiring young Black men and women 
to be proud of African-American culture and to feel that they have a right to defend themselves. So they would walk around with weapons in a military fashion, but had not committed any violent crimes. It was just, you know, the Black Panthers were doing it out in Oakland and other places around the country to show that we have a right to self-defense and we have a right to promote our uh, aspirations for self-determination. So that's what I was trying to say in the book about police repression. You know, you can politicize what happens every day with police on the street, but there's a, there's a sad reality that they also are used to suppress uh, movements like they seem to do this past summer with the Black Lives Matter protests around the country. Peaceful protests were brutally suppressed. People were hurt, some people died. Thousands of people were arrested, at least over 10,000. And there were some pretty bad situations in Cleveland on May 30th uh, around the Justice Center. People were shot with beanbags. People were arrested you know, arbitrarily. And there was a effort by the city of Cleveland to downplay the conduct of the police. So that's why I say there's a history of the police being used by those of the elites, the corporations, the powerful, to not allow disruptions of their power. And I think that's something that we all need to think about. You know, I, uh, I just got finished reading the most recent biography of Malcolm X. And one of the things that the author makes plain in there is that the FBI has been infiltrating activist organizations with informants and wiretaps and surveillance since like 1930. That yeah. Yeah. blows my mind. And in fact, in one of your organizations, you said that you had an informant in your midst as well. Yes, yes, in the, in, in the Wounded Knee Legal Defense Offense Committee in Rapid City, which was organized to provide lawyers and legal defense for over 350 people who were arrested during the course of the Wounded Knee takeover. And we found out that there was a, somebody planted in our defense team. Right. And sure. No, no, but, but, but there, there were informants and agent provocateurs in the American Indian Movement as well as part of the COINTELPRO program, which tried to destroy that movement and make the public believe that these, this movement was a terrorist movement. And they've used terror, you know, the system has used terrorism which is a, you know, a, a catchword for horror, horrifying conduct as a way of painting legitimate movements for social change as being unworthy of attention. And that's a long discussion, okay? But you know, I had done some ter ter quote terrorism cases in recent years that left a lot of questions as to whether they were, they were really viable cases. So lawyers are needed, activist lawyers are needed to understand how the politics work, to understand what's going on really. You know, it's not just did they do it or not do it, it's what's behind it in terms of the politics. And so I try 
to bridge the 60s and 70s to what's going on now. And the big difference is now there's more technology and the ability to infiltrate our social media and to infiltrate our groups in very nefarious ways that would be considered a, a serious element of a police state. You know, you talk about how we need more activist lawyers and that you try to be a bridge from the 60s. Obviously, you do encourage young people to pursue your type of law. That's why you and your wife, Robin, created the fellowship at the Cleveland Marshall School of Law. So obviously, you do want hope and um, actually are trying to promote people to come into this, young people to come into this field. What I want to ask you, though, is about Cleveland. I think that those of us who think on this issue would say that Cleveland is a place that eats their young. It's, it's not a place that really kind of develops young talent. You yourself talk about like you benefited so much from great mentors when you were a young attorney in the 1970s. Do you think that Cleveland has the infrastructure to support a young social justice attorney? Well, that's a very, very good question. I was very lucky uh, during the 60s and 70s, during that period of great social change and upheaval, where it seemed to me most of the, my peers were either hippies or activists. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we didn't have the same financial pressures as kids do today. But I see a new generation evolving in their own way to engage in social justice. And I've been to the law schools, I've talked to students, there really is a mood right now, especially after the last four years that we had to endure, that they see the importance, whether or not they become an activist lawyer, but in any field of law, to be cognizant of racism, to be cognizant of marginalized people, and in their own way, move the needle forward. So I'm not saying to the students, be another Terry Gilbert, because it's different now. But the principles are the same, and the tactics might be different. I'm not saying going around and put your hand over the mouth of prosecutors. <laughs> That's not a cool thing to do. And, you know, I kind of regret that in some respects. But it is important to speak out, exercise your right to free speech, and educate yourself about the inequities in the legal system, you know, and not be, you know, just accepting with a blind eye that everything's hunky-dory. It's not. And when I do a trial, prosecutors would say to the jury, you know, this is the greatest legal system in the world. We are the most just system in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, that's really not true. I mean, we're still trying as a society to, to reach the kind of justice that we deserve. That's why I am, I've dealt with so many cases of wrongful imprisonment and you know, exonerations and working with Innocence Projects because that shows that things aren't working well. And it's, there's nothing wrong with being critical of the system. You know, the, 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 a lot of the problems with the police are systemic. It's not about necessarily just individual bad cops. It's the way the police are organized, 
how they are supervised, the training and things like that. So there's always room for improvement. And I think that activists and students should feel that they're not the minority or that they're going to be, there's going to be repercussions if they speak out or family members are going to say, why are you doing that? (laughs) You do it because you believe in it and you take the flack. But most of the time you get good praise for that. And now is the time when people are really seeing the importance of, of social change, criminal justice reform and things like that. People are definitely seeing that right now. Your book with Carla Wolf is called Trying Times. I have to say that after I finished reading it, particularly reading the history of police murders in Cleveland that you have been um, working on since the 1980s, I thought the book should not be called Trying Times. I thought it should be called Same Time. It was absolutely unbelievable to me that in the 1980s, there were black men, unarmed black men being gunned down basically on Euclid in downtown Cleveland, even then before video cameras. Again, just everybody out there is listening, everybody listens to podcasts. If you're looking for the history of Cleveland, this is an absolutely invaluable book. Um, As I was telling uh, your publicist, Jamie, this book gave me nightmares. Like literally I needed to like step back from it, have a few nightmares about it and process it because this sort of heaviness and inequality has been going on for a really, really long time. I have one more sort of fun question for you before we move on, because we've been talking about so many heavy things. An astrologist in Boston advised you in, in, a, in a, you know, a kind of depressing period for you, you were like being professionally successful, but like you didn't have like a meaningful romantic relationship. You didn't have tight family relationships at the time. You were a man of the age. You wanted to settle down and have a family of your own. And so you visited an astrologist in Boston and she apparently read your stars, your charts, and told you that you would have a big case coming up and you would meet the love of your life and marry her and have two children. All this turned out to be true. So I wanna ask you, do you believe in astrology? And since that time, have you visited an astrologist? Well, let me tell you a little secret. (laughs) I didn't want that in the book. (laughs) But, you know, when you have a a, a team effort, you you talk about your life, you talk about the stories, and, you know, I got outvoted. But I'm glad it's in there, actually, because it's who I am, you know? I, I was very desperate at the time. I met with this uh, person, Monica, who was brilliant and insightful. Now, whether it is a legitimate science, I don't know, but all of us believe in things that you can't see, right? (laughs) That's what religion's all about. And I thought, well, you know, my friend said, you gotta see this, this astrologer. She's more than astrologer, she also has therapeutic benefits, so to speak. And we talked and we talked about my life and about what was going on. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a coincidence that those things happen, or maybe she just saw me as somebody who's gonna be successful, but that was pretty specific what she said. And I'll take what, you know, I'll take it. Because, you know, I didn't 
like count the days when I'd meet Robin. To me, that was a coincidence that had uh, resonated a lot about who we are together. And the children who came because of, they were miracle kids because we weren't being able to get pregnant, you know, on our own, were the two things in my life that have given me great joy and happiness. And I wanted to put, I wanted the book to show who I am. I didn't want it to just be just cases and political stories and Cleveland history and uh, philosophy. I wanted it to be a personal story. And that's what we, Carlo and I spent a lot of time talking about my early years because it allows the reader to see how I shaped my views. I'm glad it happened that way, but you know, whether astrology is for everybody, I can't say. Well, it worked and that's why it's, it's great to have a co-author because that little snippet on the astrologer, it was dear. And also, even when you describe your histories of being a party boy in Cleveland, I mean, yeah. that's Cleveland history too. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember the history of the flats and Peabody's down under. It added a lot of like color and just kind of context to the story. So Carlo, yay on you that those were good additions. I, went, I just wanted to say I went to an astro astrologer too. This is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's what you did in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I went to an ashram in uh, Pennsylvania because that was what was, you know, through the counterculture, people were looking for spiritual answers to their lives. Right. And so, you know, I went, out, went, went, went to a retreat. Didn't work out that well. But these are the experiments and the experiences in a period of, of freedom of mind, freedom of mind. Why not? Let's just go for it. And that's the kind of the ideas that I had back then that transformed me into a lawyer. You also did the sweat house on the reservation. You did the heat thing with the um, hallucinogenics and kind of opened your mind up there. Well, I didn't take an, I didn't take a hallucinogenics. I didn't need them <laughs> in that sweat lodge. I mean, the, the, the experience itself uh, took me to another level, uh, which was the whole point of it in Native American spirituality is that the sweat lodge is a, a place where you touch base with your relatives throughout your, throughout generations and look at things differently and feel a sense of connection to the nature and to, to people and, to, and find yourself. So it was very important for me. And it was after Leonard Peltier's trial, which was devastating because we lost. And Leonard Peltier is still in prison after over 45 years. So these experiences, everybody has experiences. But if you're going to write a memoir, you got to lay it all out, it seems to me. People don't want to hear a sanitized version of yourself. No. And you, you, you throw out the good and the bad. And actually, it wasn't so bad. I mean, it's not like I murdered anybody. <laughs> or, or I got, you know, charged with some terrible, you know, financial fraud or something like that. No, I mean, when I got in trouble, it was, as John Lewis has said, it was good trouble. 
<laughs> no, you, you got into no serious trouble. It was kind of a portrait of a young man. So it was actually delightful. Well, I have to say it was a fine, fine product. I'm going to go ahead and say it. If I have one criticism of the book, it's this. You guys really, really could have made an index. Like there was so, <laughs> like there was just, there's so much pertinent um, historical information I felt like, you know, I wanted to reference all these names because I really feel that this is a book that's going to be cited by others as they're building the history of Cleveland. It was a fine, it is a fine, fine, remarkable book. And I want to remind everybody who's listening now and later, you can purchase it at Loganberry Books. If you buy it from Loganberry online at our online store or if you uh, purchase it um, in store by calling us, we would ha be happy to get you an autographed copy. Terry and Carlo, thank you so much for joining me today and with Loganberry Books. This was extraordinary and thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. It was great. <laughs> thank you. It was great. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>